Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. All right, thanks for joining me today. Sorry for not having an episode published last week. Uh, we had a one of the members of our church go home to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, and last week I spent some time writing a memorial sermon for her funeral and then conducting her funeral. And so that, in addition to the other responsibilities I've had, prevented me from report, recording an episode last week. But today, back again to record a second episode in this series on how to have a marriage that glorifies Christ. Now, it boggles my mind to have to think that in the second episode on how to have a marriage that glorifies Christ, we have to spend an entire episode on defining what marriage is. But I believe it was in 2015 when the Supreme Court of the United States basically said that any two adults who consent to marry one another, whether they are two males or two females or whatever they might be, um, they can, according to the law of the United States government, join together in marriage. And so that was a uh, pretty radical departure from, let's see, oh, 6,000 years of human history, 8,000 years of human history uh, that did not accept homosexual relationships as legitimate, long-term relationships for life. And I know if I was going to look at the other side's perspective, the other side would say, well, you know, the Bible, or in the Bible, Jesus doesn't condemn homosexuality, nor does Jesus condemn homosexual marriage. And so, you know, if you're really going to be loving, if you're really a Christian and, and you're going to go by what Jesus says, then you need to, you know, follow what Jesus says. Don't worry about the Apostle Paul. Don't worry about Leviticus. Don't worry about these other things. All right, fair enough. Okay, fine. If you want to argue just on the basis of what Jesus said, we can do that, and we're going to make that argument today, right now. And so, the title to this lesson is How Jesus Defines Marriage, and probably the subtitle could be, you know, How Sinful Man Has Sought to Pervert Jesus's Definition Since the Beginning. But let's go to Matthew chapter 19 first to talk about Jesus and how he understood marriage and how he defined marriage. All right. Matthew chapter 19, to set the stage for some context, the Pharisees were a religious group. Uh, they were Jews, and they were the primary teachers. Let's, let's use that word. They were the primary teachers in the first century in the nation of Israel, and they were the ones who interpreted the Old Testament law and told the Jews how they should practice the Old Testament law. The Pharisees were 
not really happy with Jesus for a variety of reasons. Number one, he continually showed that their interpretations of the law were wrong and that they were self-serving instead of God-honoring. And so they were trying to discredit Jesus by testing him with a series of questions. So the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they test him by asking him this question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. So in this discussion about, okay, where do you go to find the answers for marriage? Jesus went all the way back to creation. What was God's original intention for mankind? Man, you recall, was the culmination of God's creation. Man was created on the sixth day, and he was the only being that Scripture records that was created in the image of God. And because man was made in the image of God, he was more unique than all the other animals, all the other birds, and everything else that God created. Man and man alone was made in the image of God. And on that sixth day, if you read in Genesis chapter 2, you'll find that Adam named all the animals that God made. But after naming all the animals, he did not find an animal of course, he didn't find an animal, but he didn't find any other created being that was suitable for him, that was a match to him. So here's Adam looking at all these pairs of animals. Really, there were not just pairs. I'm sure the Lord God created um, dozens or hundreds, if not thousands, of a particular variety of animal, and Adam named them, and Adam could see this, that there were all these dozens and dozens of different animals of the same kind. They had partners. But for Adam, there was no partner. So the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they test him. They start talking to him about divorce and they're looking for an answer to, is it okay to divorce your wife for any reason at all? They were looking for a no-fault divorce. They were looking for Jesus's affirmation that a no-fault divorce was acceptable according to Mosaic law. Now, of course, this wasn't acceptable according to Mosaic law. This wasn't what um, Moses wrote down. It was their interpretation of the Mosaic law. And so Jesus, very brilliantly, of course, he's God, very brilliantly redirects their thinking. Instead of answering this nuanced question about the law, he goes back to the original intent of what God designed. What did God design for mankind? What did God want human beings to do? And so, in doing that, Jesus, though he does not condemn homosexual marriage, he excludes it by talking about exactly what God intended for his creation to do. Those who are created in his image 
male and female, must be joined together. So while Jesus doesn't explicitly say homosexual marriage is wrong, he implicitly says marriage is only for a male and a female. And anything else, therefore, is not marriage. Jesus provides a mutually exclusive definition of marriage. If marriage is between a male and female, marriage cannot be between a male and two females, or one female and two males, or two males and two females, or a group of people, or uh, a human being and some type of animal. Marriage cannot be between any of those things. Marriage is only between a male and a female. And there is a uniqueness to this relationship. You see, in Genesis, and Jesus quotes this, God says that a man will leave his father and mother and he will hold fast or he will be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. There is a serious, unique bond that is formed by marriage. And that bond is a God-ordained bond. It is a God-established bond. And it is a bond that ought not to be broken for any cause at all. It can only be broken, as Jesus later says, by the violation of physical intimacy when one spouse uh, cheats on another spouse or commits adultery on the other spouse. That is the only thing that legitimatizes the separation of the male and the female. Now, I really don't want to get off on too much of a tangent about divorce, but I'm going to bring it up here, and I'm going to say this about it, and that is that in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus gives the one appropriate reason for divorcing your spouse, and that is marital infidelity. That is, if you take the one flesh union, the bond between a husband and wife, that physical intimacy, and you go uh, partake in that bond with somebody who is not your spouse, that is the legitimate reason why you can commit adultery. Now, have Christians practiced this faithfully? No, they haven't. Christians, sadly, have imitated the unsaved world by allowing divorce for a host of other reasons that don't include marital infidelity, adultery. And so, yes, the church does need to improve in this area. Christians need to improve in this area. But if we're commenting on what Jesus thinks about marriage, we also ought to say briefly what Jesus thinks about divorce, and he allows it for the sake of sexual immorality. All right, let's go back to Genesis, and let's take a look from the text of Genesis about the reasons, or at the reasons, why God decided to establish marriage. Why did God decide to establish marriage? So Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. 
Now, this is the English Standard Version. Other versions say, a helper suitable for him. In the margin of this Bible, it says, a helper corresponding to him. And we're going to start here, and we're just going to start unpacking the reasons why marriage is good, the reasons why God established marriage. First of all, what we find out is that marriage is for companionship, that it was not good that the man should be alone. Now, this is very interesting because thus far in the creation narrative, everything that God has made has been good, 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 good. Nothing has been bad. Now, all of a sudden, we come to this point here in Genesis 2.18. This is the sixth day of creation, by the way, and God is speaking about Adam and the fact that Adam doesn't find a helper who is fit for him, who is corresponding to him, and he said, this is not good. Well, God didn't do this by mistake. God did this, God did this to make a point that marriage establishes companionship. It is good for a man to have a wife. It is good for a man to spend time with somebody. It is not good that the man is alone. Very simple. Now, again, if you go back to Matthew chapter 19, Jesus does say that there are very few people who are gifted with the gift of singleness. Very few. But the majority of people, the vast majority of people, need companionship. And so that is one of the first fundamentals of marriage, that marriage is for companionship. And the second thing that we find about marriage, a fundamental truth, an attribute of marriage as God designed it, is this, that man is the natural head in the relationship and woman is the suitable helper. This is what God established. You see, the, the fact that God said, I will make a helper suitable for him, means that the man, by inference, is the head of the relationship, and the woman comes alongside the man. And we're going to talk about this here in just a moment. So if, if you don't agree that the man is the head and a woman is a suitable helper, your disagreement is with the text of Genesis, uh, not with me per se, because I'm just explaining to you what Genesis says. And I want, to, I want to come back to this particular point a little bit later here on the episode. So, you know, if you're having a, uh, some disagreement with that, just hold on. We'll come back to that and maybe address those things. Uh, not maybe, definitely address those things. Now, the third thing, the third foundation of marriage, the third attribute of marriage established here in Genesis is that male and female both equally reflect the image of God. This is, this is essentially true. And this naturally follows upon the previous point. Um, if you were to do a, um, a harmony of Genesis 1 and 2, uh, some of you may have heard of the tool, it's called a harmony of the Gospels, where you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you put them in a chronological order. Okay? If you were to do the same thing with Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, comes before Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, all right? 
So this is a chronological outflow here that it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Okay. So then as a result of this, God puts Adam to sleep and takes out one of his ribs and he makes woman from that and he brings woman to man. And when Adam opens his eyes from the sleep and he sees Eve for the first time, he says this, verse 23 of Genesis chapter 2, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Now, here, let's insert Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. Man, remember, we've established that it's not good for man to be alone and that man is the head and woman is the suitable helper. But now, here in our harmony of Genesis 1 and 2 is verse 26 from chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and what? Female. He created them. So male and female equally reflect the image of God. That means positionally, they are equal in the eyes of God. Uh, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means that you have emotion, intellect, will, the ability to create a unique personality and specific responsibilities to fulfill. So male and female made in the image of God reflect God's creative power reflect God's intellect, reflect God's will, reflect God's emotions, reflect the fact that God has a unique personality and that God himself has responsibilities to fulfill. Male and female are positionally equal before God because they are made in God's image. Man is not more of the image of God than woman, and woman is not more of the image of God than man. All right? Now you say, well, well how come one is the head and one is the helper, because they are functionally different. They are fulfilling different roles from a functional outworking perspective, not a positional perspective. All right, so the fourth attribute of marriage, then, the fourth foundational truth about marriage, if you will, is that male and female are the foundation of this union. So it's not good for man to be alone. Man needs a suitable helper. Male and female equally reflect the image of God. And male and female are the foundation, the cornerstone of the marriage union. See, in Genesis 2.24, we're going back again, back to Genesis 2.24. God says this, Therefore a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Male and female are the foundation of the marriage family unit, the family unit that is established by marriage. That's probably a smoother way to say that. Male and female are the foundation of the marriage or the family unit established by marriage. By defining marriage this way, as male and female, who are equally 
reflecting the image of God, who have a unique functionality, and who have a purpose of companionship, God has excluded homosexual relationships and polygamous relationships from his ideal of what marriage ought to be. Did you catch that? Both homosexual relationships and polygamous relationships are excluded from God's ideal, from God's original intention. Now, why do we have, then, homosexual unions and polygamous unions? We have them because of sin. Because when Adam sinned, all of creation fell under the curse of sin, and all of Adam's children, of which are you and I, we are cursed with a sin nature and a propensity to sin, and we do what we want. We rebel against God's commands. Another question that's often raised at this point would then be, well, how come God did not condemn Old Testament saints who had polygamous relationships? You know, if these relationships were not his intent, how come God didn't condemn them? Well, there are a great many things that God does not approve of, but which he doesn't directly and immediately judge. So that would include like the sins that I would commit on a daily basis when I'm prideful. Um, God, God doesn't uh, condone that behavior. God doesn't approve that behavior. But when I'm prideful, God doesn't also send down a lightning bolt or something to that effect that immediately judges me as a result of that. God is patient. God is gracious. And often, when we sin in a way that violates God's ideal, God allows us to suffer the natural consequences as a result of that sin. And I would say that's certainly what happened to many of the Old Testament saints who practiced polygamy. Think about Abraham, the heartache that he went through by listening to the voice of Sarah and cultivating a relationship with Hagar. Think about Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who had one wife and then another wife and then two other wives upon that. And the conflict that was introduced into his life as a result of that polygamous relationship. And you could continue going down the list of Old Testament saints who had a polygamous relationship or, or polygamous relationships and look at the consequences of sin they suffered as a result of not following God's ideal. God allowed the relationship, but the consequences that came into those individuals' lives demonstrated that that wasn't God's ideal and that that wasn't what God really wanted. Now, let's take a look at a sixth attribute of marriage, a sixth foundational truth about marriage. And that is, that a married couple becomes one flesh. Now, this one flesh relationship is a unique relationship. Paul says that the one flesh relationship in the book of 1 Corinthians is the result of the sexual union between the man and the woman. And he explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 by saying, how could you become one flesh with basically a harlot or a prostitute? That is unacceptable. That's intolerable. You cannot do that. Uh, it ought not to be done. I should say you can do that, but you ought not to do that. Right? So, um, 
a married couple becomes one flesh because of the sexual union. And this is very interesting. The physical union between a man and a woman is so unique and special that to violate it is to sin against your own body and to sin against your spouse's body. This one flesh relationship provides a unique picture of the Godhead for those of us here on earth. You're separate persons. There's two people, a husband and a wife, but they become one flesh. Now, how does that picture the Godhead? Well, the Godhead is three separate persons, but one entity, one essence. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three individuals, but each of them uniquely God. Now, the the Trinity is not a a, a one-flesh relationship like marriage is. There's no, uh, no sexuality or anything like that in the Trinity. But God has given us this picture of what the Trinity is like in marriage, how you can have two people who are one and yet separate so that we can wrap our finite minds just a little bit around the greatness and grandeur of his being. The one flesh relationship is a special relationship. And if there is one topic outside of idolatry that is condemned probably more than any other topic in the scriptures, it would be that of adultery. And the danger of adultery, the shamefulness of adultery. Because you've taken that which is unique and special and you've broken it by introducing a third party into that relationship. Well, a seventh thing that we find as an attribute of marriage a cornerstone, if you will, is that married couples have a God-given, God-ordained responsibility. This is explained in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. So again, if you look at Genesis 1 and 2 as a harmony, and there are some parts of Genesis uh, 2 that come in the middle of verses of Genesis 1, this makes a lot of sense. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave the married couple a responsibility. The responsibility was to be fruitful and multiply. So they were to have children, and they were also to fill the earth. So they weren't to just stay in Eden. They were to have children, and they were then to spread out from Eden and fill the entire earth. And then they were to subdue it. What does that mean, subdue? Uh, it doesn't mean how we think of it in our culture today where you know, you're wrestling somebody to the ground to subdue them, to put handcuffs on them. What it means is to uh, t- cultivate and tend and make a certain result come about. So we were to fill the earth and to subdue the earth uh, utilizing the intrinsic abilities that God gave us to manage the animals and the plants that God has, God placed in the earth. 
And then God says this, you're to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We are to exercise authority. To have dominion means to rule over something. And I would say that this concept or the concept that we get from this particular clause is the concept of stewardship. We have a responsibility to exercise a God-honoring stewardship over the creation. We are to care for it. We are to enhance it. We are to beautify it. We are to use it for our benefit and for our good, all the while remembering that God is the creator and we are acting as caretakers over what he has created and what he has established. That's our role and our responsibility, to exercise dominion, to practice good stewardship. Now, this concludes the first day, or the sixth day of creation. And on the sixth day, at the very conclusion, God said that he saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. See, it wasn't very good when Adam was alone. It was only very good when God had made Eve and brought Eve to Adam, and they were joined together in a union, and they were given a commission. At that point, God said, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So Adam and Eve were there living in the Garden of Eden in a true paradise, in the best possible environment they could have ever imagined. So you would think that Adam and Eve and the relationship would be set up for success, for there was no sin that had yet entered the world. There were no degrading influences. There was nothing of that sort. And yet we'll find out. I'm going to run out of time today, so I'll have to do this for the next episode. We will find out that God's perfect design lasted for just a little while. And after a little while, sin entered into creation and the curse of sin and God's perfect design became perverted. And we today are living with the effects of that perversion and we are trying to recover the ideal of marriage as established in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And I think that's an important thing to remember that we are trying to reestablish the ideal that God intended. And we can do that because of the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. But it takes a lot of work. And I want to encourage you to work hard at it, for it will be a great blessing to you and to your spouse, to your family, and to your church family. And it'll be a wonderful testimony to the unbelieving world. May God bless you as you seek to put him first and put Christ first in your marriage relationship.